Hello, and welcome again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and today's episode is part two of our series on Black Sabbath's Paranoid. Once again, I'll quickly mention my sources for this episode. Mainly, I referenced the book Black Sabbath, Symptom of the Universe by Mick Wall, the 33 and a third book on Black Sabbath's Master of Reality by John Darnell, the classic album's documentary on Paranoid, and the source material from my Berkeley College of Music class. Shout out Professor Horan. There are a few things to listen for and consider on side two of Paranoid. Sabbath was very aware of the world around them. A lot of their lyrics were frequently seen as glorifying things like drug use, suicide, or war, but in reality, they were singing about the horror and the ramifications of these things on society. Also, Sabbath's music early on was very riff-driven. Iomi would come up with a riff and they'd write a song around that. So I just think that's interesting when you look at the structure of a lot of their songs. No songs on Paranoid follow any kind of regular format, verse, chorus, verse, that sort of thing but there are a lot of tempo changes. It's a unique songwriting style. With that, let's get right back into it with the first track on side two, Electric Funeral. Also stinks. Stinks, but I like Ozzy's vocals because yes. they sound, they're so like just dread. Yes. It's like, oh. And another, um, another song that's very coherent in what it's trying to convey mm -hmm. lyrically. This is actually maybe okay. the The take is not. I shouldn't have said this. The song doesn't stink. It's not my favorite on the album, but um, there's. It's got enough redeeming qualities. It's it's a good song. It's 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 got good. It's maybe the sum of its parts isn't quite as good as like when you break it down individually. Like the lyrics are actually pretty good. Ozzy's performance is actually pretty good. This is maybe this actually might be Tony Iommi's worst performance on the you album. Think so? It's redeemed somewhat by the middle portion. But I'm not a huge fan of like the opening and closing riff on the song. You can hear um, going back to the down tuning of the guitars, like you can really hear the slack on the guitar strings, on the, the tension of the guitar strings in the mm -hmm. song. Um, and I actually I like you. You mentioned that this kind of has like a like a sludgy, drudgy, kind of Pantera feel. That's absolutely right. Um, and the opening like eight bars of the song, I guess, however long the intro is, is better than for me, like the verse section. Is that because of Ozzy's vocals? You think, or is it something else? I think it just uh, no. I think it just kind of gets a little bit like repetitive. Yeah, because I was gonna ask if you thought it would be better as an instrumental. The song might actually be better as an instrument. Like just it would overall. need to be shorter. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think it would be better as an instrumental if it were a little bit shorter. Yeah. Because it is really repetitive, and if they could have gotten a little more, this is one of those where they kind of fell into that same pattern of, okay, well, Ozzy's going to follow whatever melody's going on in the guitar. And if they didn't have that, then I think maybe Iomi could have opened up a little bit. Um, but, you know. Yeah, 
coulda, woulda, shoulda. Yeah. Well, and it's we still like we gotta remember even back when I think this was their second full length album. Like Ozzy was like Ozzy was the band at this. I mean, I that might be over that might be overstating it, but like I think as the front man, like everyone, you know, you're if at least if you probably if you saw them in person as a showman, like you came to see Ozzy. And he's definitely the most interesting looking. And yes. he's the biggest personality, at least in terms of outward publicity of Black Sabbath, because they're still pretty new at this point, like you right. said earlier. Um, and people are just trying to latch on to somebody, and it's usually frontman. strongly dislike the spoken word electric funeral like yeah. part yeah i'm with you i'm not a big spoken word guy in general yeah but at least they were trying something you know if you're gonna give them points for effort maybe i don't know sure participation this, trophy yeah sure good job this, guys <laughs> not, this is not really my favorite song i don't feel passionate about the song at all me either why don't we move on to hand of doom i feel very passionately about this song <laughs> Okay, let's talk because I love this song too, and it is it is, I think, the epic of this album. This song is quite purposefully a journey. I I'm sure that I think we're gonna have the same take like we did on the Iron Man thing. But <laughs> all right, to you is this song, um, basically, does do, does the the arc of this song resemble to you the doldrums of pre finding a heroin fix. Yes. The, the, you, this is your brain on heroin part of the middle of the song. And then the, the fix waning away and you going back into just like looking for your next fix as a junkie. This is a junkies opera basically. Absolutely. Actually one of my notes line for line, one of my notes, like I like the different modes goes from being dope sick to high and happy. Yep. That's, yep, dope sick. Exactly. That's, and very explicit about this in this lyrics and is super important from a cultural perspective because so many people, uh, so many soldiers, enlisted men came back from Vietnam with a heroin problem. Right. And nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to address it. And this is geezer like witnessing firsthand, like we've got this, we're having like this entire lost generation of souls coming back and they've seen remarkable atrocities 
in Vietnam. And oh, by the way, they're dealing with their PTSD by being hooked on smack. Like it's a fucking dark song. Butler's two older brothers were called into the um, the English army, and he was afraid that he was going to get pulled in for Vietnam, but didn't because they, I think they like, right before he turned of age or whatever, I think they stopped um, the mandatory service requirements. I didn't know that, but I mean, it's very immediately it clicks what all a lot of the songs in this album are about. I think I sent a note to you when we were leading up to this, that this album or Black Sabbath on this album was like the heavy metal version of CCR. (laughs) Which I love that take. I mean, it's very much a, you know, war is, uh, they're they're kind of protest songs. They're just different kinds of protest songs. Right. Right. This is a very uh, war pig, hand of doom, especially war pigs and hand of doom are visceral, like, War is hell and it's the, you know, the heart of darkness apocalypse. Now war is hell. Um, Not the, you know, well, somewhat, you know, we're to borrow from CCR, like the silver spoon in hand type of, you know, we're, we're not going to go like the poor people shouldn't have to go fight this war for you politicians, which is an express theme on, on some of the songs in this album, but more of the aftermath Um, hand of doom, especially like, is about drug addiction and PTSD, which were, you know, not themes that anybody really talked about openly in 1969 or 79, 89 until the 90s and 2000s. He's definitely ahead of his time in a lot of the themes and developing a way to express them, like you said, in in a new way. I mean, he... That sounds that's that's not a great not a great way of articulating it, but you're right. I mean, um, a lot of like blending of themes. Iron Man, you know, talks about time travel. It talks about you know, kind of like a, a science fiction, you know, not robot, maybe robot creature that's you know come back from the future where we've all been annihilated by an atomic bomb. Things that you know at the time you're probably like, I, I can only imagine how it was received and the late 60s, early, early 70s. I keep saying late 60s. This album was 1970, right? Correct. Okay. So like the early 70s um, when you had, you know, it's almost got like, 
I might butcher this, but it's almost got like an like an H. H. Mencken kind of is that the right author that has like uh he is I think he's an author in the twenties, but like a, a a very like kind of far out vibe, which I think probably had something to do with his experimentation with hallucinogenics and Absolutely. kind of like out of body experiences and things that he had seen that were not of this world and trying to to pen it in a way that he could articulate it to and make it so that Ozzy could sing about it. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is it's it's a lot different when you're writing as a lyricist for somebody else to sing your songs. And this is one of the things that Neil Peart did so well for Rush. He made songs that Getty could just belt because he knew that that was his strength. I think on this album, uh, Geezer tries to, to pen songs that are easy enough for Ozzy to try to find his voice and develop, you know, develop melodies that go, you know, with all the other instruments, which I think progressively gets better over the recording of this album, maybe not necessarily chronologically on this album. The opening like minute and a half, two minutes of the song, I think are like the first grunge song. And it sounds grunge in it's, this is the most guttural uh, Ozzy's vocals sound on this album. I hear a lot of Alice in Chains, Soundgarden type tones, bass driven, like the bass is, is very forward in the song, at least in the beginning portions of it. I mean, if you play this song, like this could be an Alice in Chains song. And notably in the grunge movement, like a lot of those guys had smack problems too. I, I mean, there's a... There's yeah, a, the guy from Alice in Chains died of a heroin overdose. Yeah, there's a very, there's like a heroin undercurrent to a lot of the grunge songs. And yeah, like this this song to me is like the, the first grunge song. I think the other thing about this song, this is something that Pantera did a lot, that Dimebag and Pantera did a lot is they were bold enough to just have the bass um, kind of carry on the melody and they would solo over top of the bass without another layered rhythm guitar underneath it. Mm. If you listen to Walk, um, probably the most famous Pantera song, that solo is bass and lead guitar and there's nothing in between it. And it's just like, it's almost like a, it's almost like visceral in the way that it comes across because there's nothing to, to like, bridge the gap between like this chaotic guitar solo and the more like drudgy rhythm of the bass and um i think that this is that song that i'm that made me think of that but uh just it goes to show like how how this album can carry through
again one of, like one of Ozzy's best performances on this album. Um, shows more range, shows more dynamic, shows more vulnerability in the way that he conveys the lyrics. And it's not like he, you can tell he like feels the song a little bit more. Mm-hmm. That maybe the lyrics resonate with him at least a little bit more than than some of the other songs on the album. I mean, it's, it's I guess it's probably always easier to resonate with personal experiences like you know Ozzy hadn't been to war um, but he had probably they played for people that were in the army they like yeah. went out on tour and played for these people and they saw firsthand what was happening to a lot of these boys yeah they were boys yeah. you know Ed starts spinning round you fall down to the ground body heave death and start to weave Rat salad, which rat is salad. rat salad. Rat salad. <laughs> which I wish there were words to this song because I feel like they'd be really funny. Drum solo is sick. It's so sick. Yes, it's so sick. It's like where was this for the other I... seven songs in this al- eight songs in this album? Um, rat salad. Yeah, it's. I mean, cool. It's a. It's rat salad. What do you want? This. This feels to me like what was the. Uh, did what is a rat? Watch, did you ever watch Doug as yes. a kid? Yes. So like when the Beats had the um, like killer tofu. Yeah. This feels like a song that the Beats might have had. Like yeah. what? Rat what, salad. what goes in rat salad? Well, there's tails and ears and cheese. Cheese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe a mousetrap. Oh God. Um, it's dangerous rat salad.
So is Jack the Stripper the intro to Fairies Wear Boots? I think so. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. I do know Jack the Stripper, uh, there was a serial killer. There was like a London serial killer in the mid 60s. Jack the Ripper. Well, there was Jack the Ripper, but then there was also another one that they nicknamed Jack the Stripper. Because Jack the Ripper was way, way right, early. Right, 1800s. Yeah, he was like okay. super early on. But Jack the Stripper is like the dumbest name possible for this guy because he just killed prostitutes. Like, why are we calling him? He killed, he, so he supposedly Didn't... killed like six prostitutes. They never caught the guy, but they called him Jack the Stripper. Cool. Really creative. Yeah. It probably fit on a headline, like a newspaper headline. Right. And it yeah. probably was like, oh, we have a serial killer in London again. Mm. But um, I heard two sides of this story. One from Iomi, and I think the other one was probably from Ozzy. But no, it was Geezer, because Geezer wrote this after he had a violent run-in with some skinheads in London. And I say skinheads. Um, they were a working class subculture in London. Um, and they wore big, like, work boots. Hmm. So that was one thing that I heard. And then the other one was that they just got super high outside and thought that people in a park were fairies. I mean, the last lyric of the song is, because smoking and tripping is all that you do. So, yeah. <laughs> who knows? He's like, fairies wear boots. You gotta believe me. You gotta believe me. <laughs> I saw it with my own two eyes. Uh, yeah. They're dancing with a dwarf. Let's, yeah. I don't know. By this time, though, I don't know that I, like, I'm still sort of, I don't know that I'm as invested. After Rat Salad is over. Rat Salad. After that's over. <laughs> Rat Salad. I can't do that. I wish I could. God. Every time I do, I just, like, end up coughing because it hurts so much. You have headphones on, so I'm not going to show you what I can do screen-wise. Dang. No, we'll, we'll do it please? later. We'll do it later. Offline. Take this offline. Damn it. Yes! <laughs> Damn, how can you do that? I, I don't, a lot of heavy metal. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times sitting in my car in traffic going, Rachelet! <laughs> Get out of my way! time like pantheon of heavy metal albums this one has a place because it's you know it's kind of the first or at least the first like commercially successful heavy metal album but this is about this is an album that i i'm not gonna listen to for a while after this um just because it doesn't really uh, you know if i if i'm in the i feel like um you know i, I always feel like like time is money with music for some reason and there's just like so many other albums that i'd rather listen to that this one doesn't like make my regular rotation and it never really has but god do i respect what it did for a lot of the bands that i really do love so kudos to black sabbath paranoid awesome as we discussed in the first episode, the title of the song War Picked was originally supposed to be Walpurgis and that was supposed to be the name of the album too which led me to believe that the artwork on the front is depicting a grouping of warmongers, which faintly look like marching pigs. 
definitely the color makes sense. I you know, like you know you can kind of see the ears yeah. coming out of the helmet. Yeah. But yeah, I think those are the war pigs, which I'm sure that they already had this cover like planned out before they changed the album name to Paranoid. That's so they're probably like, well, I guess. It almost has like a, <laughs> I mean, this would have been way before, um, way before Blair Witch Project, but it almost has like, you know, that in in the woods kind of oh, yeah. horror. Good call. I mean, you know, kind of coming from the darkness and it's, it's lit very, very uniquely. I don't know if there's a significance to the fact that it's, it only has like a single, what looks to be a pine tree there. I don't know if there's. I wonder if that's supposed to be Vietnam. Uh, like the, in the jungles be. and stuff. Yeah. Interesting. After the release of Paranoid, much of music media still had it out for Black Sabbath. At the time, Sabbath was put up against bands like Deep Purple and Zeppelin, and they were the redheaded stepchild. A lot of music journalists thought they just weren't good. Initially, Paranoid did not get good reviews, but the album sold 4 million copies and was a hit with Sabbath fans. It was what people wanted to listen to. I love this quote from sociology professor Dina Weinstein in the classic albums documentary. She says, quote, Critics like hope. Critics tend to be upper middle class kids who are liberals. They want hope, and Sabbath was not giving them hope, end quote. One of the other things that you and I had discussed briefly before we got on the mics here is the question of does this album get better or worse the more you listen to it? You know, it's no doubt that it was ahead of its time, but listening to it decades and decades later, it 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 feels old. I don't even I think the threshold question is is this album even good? I mean, I I think it is. I think it's just, I think it would have been a better EP. I think there's like five songs on this album. If it was like a five song EP, it'd be <laughs> even better. I think there's some filler on this album for sure. There might have been some record company requirements yeah. there. <laughs> I think this album gets – I don't think it grows on you, but I think your appreciation for it grows. If that is a very like ride the fence take, I'm sorry. But I think – I don't think that it gets sonically better. I don't think that it gets proficient – like music proficiency-wise better. I don't think – you know, there's certain albums that the first time you listen to it, you're like, holy shit. Like this is – I'm going to listen to this album. I'm going to – burn this album into the ground. And then there's other albums where the first time you listen to it, you're like, okay, I, I can hear this. I can hear that. It's cool. We're going to listen to it a few times to give it a chance. Um, and, and it, maybe it'll grow on you or maybe it won't. I think that this album kind of falls into that second category where it's like, there's some good stuff on this album. There's iconic guitar riffs on this album that have been, and we can, it may be a separate discussion as to whether or not those like are, it's almost like ingratiated in us as music, fans that we've heard Iron Man and Paranoid so many times that it's just instantly but there's there's a there's something instantly recognizable about those guitar riffs and um something timeless about those guitar riffs. So you can listen to those songs and they may not get better, but you're just like it's like a this is like, you know, an old friend like you, you pick up Iron Man for the first time and I don't I don't necessarily love that song, but like when you hear that opening riff, you're just like, well this reminds me of the first like month I learned to play the guitar and I'm like, yeah. yeah, this was, I played this shit so many times. My parents probably <laughs> hate this song, but it just is like nostalgic. And it's, um, I mean, like I said, it's kind of, it's like just an iconic guitar riff that everyone instantly hears it. And they recognize like, like smoke on the water, like 
uh, like crazy train speaking of later in Ozzy's career like you just hear and you instantly you're like well we're gonna turn this shit up because that's what we have to do is when Sabbath really begins to hit their stride. They tour in America for the first time and enter the world of beautiful and promiscuous American groupies. Sabbath is christened worthy and befriended by the Hells Angels biker gang, and they discover the old waffle dust, as Tony Iommi puts it. Cocaine would become a complicated part of Sabbath's history, but for now, it was a game changer. According to Mick Wall, the next three years would speed by in a blizzard of dope, cocaine, booze, sex, and some of the best music Black Sabbath would ever make. Black Sabbath's third studio album, Master of Reality, released in 1971, and Sabbath's fan base grew deeper worldwide. so endlessly. Tony Iommi was in near constant pain having to use his finger stubs to play guitar. In 1971, Iommi started down-tuning his guitar three semitones further than it already was to allow for more slack on the strings and easier playing. This meant Geezer also had to down-tune his bass. And because of that, at this point in Sabbath's history, we start getting into a lot darker-sounding territory. Of course, this annoyed critics even further. They accused Sabbath of being purposefully creepy and offensive. And maybe they were. They weren't trying to play lullabies or anything. They were playing metal. Thanks to their live shows and media outcry, Sabbath's reputation began to grow. They also weren't shying away from the rumors that they were all Satan worshippers. Sabbath followed in Zeppelin's shoes in a lot of ways with that. Maybe they were, maybe some of them weren't, but hey, think what you want to think. That was kind of the attitude, at least early on. But they'd started taking their weirdness for granted a little bit, because that reputation started to draw in some nutty fans. Sabbath would frequently receive letters written in blood, and one night in Memphis, someone drew a large cross on their dressing room door in blood. The band thought it was paint at first. One night after a show, Sabbath found out that all these Satanists and witches had followed them back to their hotel, and they were just sitting in their hallway with black candles, chanting. As they were all staying in separate rooms, the four bandmates called each other up to try and figure out how to get these people off their floor, short of calling security. So in their hotel rooms, they decided to sync up their watches, and at exactly the same time, Geezer, Ozzy, Bill, and Tony jumped out of their rooms, blew all the Satanist candles out, and started singing happy birthday to them. The Satanists were so pissed off that they just got up and left. There were a lot of hotel shenanigans, as you might expect. Ozzy recalls one night in Virginia Beach where he had gotten off the phone with his wife Thelma back in the UK. Yes, he was married at this point, and they had two children together. 
but he had just gotten off the phone with her when he got a knock at the door and it was a groupie. They had sex. She left. Then another knock at the door. It was another groupie. He had sex with her. She left. Then another. Then another. Just a literal line of women waiting outside Ozzy's door. Sex was a favorite pastime of all the guys. Iomi and Sabbath's manager, Patrick Nehan, were going for a threesome one night with one of literally dozens of female fans who had showed up after Tony complained on a local radio interview earlier that day that he was lonely. The girl ended up passing out after they had all gotten high together, and it freaked Iomi and Nehan out so much that they thought she was dead. This is where things get scary, and I'm a little surprised Iomi was so open about the story, but apparently they for real believed she was dead. So instead of having it be on them, their plan was to throw her off the balcony and say she had fallen. Just as they were dragging her body to the window, she woke up. The band consistently towed the line between having fun and actually being complete assholes. They trashed hotel rooms, drove rental cars into the ocean, and left absolute wreckage wherever they went. One night, the band stayed at the Edgewater Inn in Seattle. If you are familiar with the now infamous Mud Shark episode from Led Zeppelin's history, this is the same hotel where that allegedly happened. The hotel was on stilts right at the edge of the water, so you could fish right there from your hotel room window. When Sabbath stayed there, Ozzy caught a small shark, Though, instead of pleasuring a groupie with it, he filled the bathtub up with water and put the live shark in it. When he returned to find the shark dead later that night, Ozzy cut it open and wiped blood and entrails all over the hotel room wall. Tony caught a shark, too, and tossed it onto Bill's bed when he wasn't looking. They actually played a lot of pranks on Bill. They were always setting him on fire, as a joke, both in the hotel and at the studio. They'd wait until Bill was passed out, then put lit matches in between his fingers and toes. At one point, they took it too far and squeezed lighter fluid on his legs before setting fire to them. Ward was so wasted that he didn't even move and just let it burn. It sent him to the hospital that time. But he was okay. At least his burns were okay. He did get diagnosed with a nasty case of hepatitis from sharing dirty needles. When the band learned this, they knew they were in trouble. But after Bill got better, he just went back to doing what he was doing. And the band was back in the studio to work on their next studio album, Volume 4. released in 1972 in time for the band's more permanent move to LA. They all lived in a mansion in Bel Air, ironically being rented to them by none other than millionaire John DuPont. I guess that much coke makes you forget your own lyrics to War Pigs. But anyway, Sabbath's drug use really ramped up at this point. Coke and Demerol dealers were coming by the house every day. Girls lined up to be invited inside the house. It was a debaucherous shit show. 
It turned into a situation where the thought of going into the studio to record actually started feeling like a chore. High as they were, Black Sabbath turned out their fifth studio album, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, in sessions for Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, the band started to wonder about their money. Patrick Meehan, their manager, had always been very private about the band's finances, which he was in full control of. They'd realized Meehan owned a number of Rolls Royces, had this huge office in London they'd never seen before, yet all the band was really spending money on was booze and drugs. For as massively successful this band had become worldwide, they hadn't really seen much of the money other than the mansion in LA. They were always able to ask Patrick for money. He'd give them 5,000 quid at a time or whatever, but they knew they had earned a heck of a lot more than that over the past three years. As they dug deeper and deeper into Meehan's business dealings, they learned that not only was he spending their money for himself, but Black Sabbath had no real money of their own. Everything they thought belonged to them, their houses outside of LA, their cars, every last bit of it was owned on paper by Meehan and his management company. But worst of all, Black Sabbath learned that not even their music belonged to them. It belonged to Meehan. It became a living nightmare for the band. Ozzy said later on that when the band signed with Meehan's management company, they were young and didn't know any better. They just thought signing a contract meant that they got to make music, which is what they all wanted to do. But as they began the process of severing ties with Meehan, they would end up having to pay him to get out of their contract. Their music licensing dispute with Meehan's company would go on to be a decades-long struggle that continued well into the 1990s. By the end of 1974, Geezer, Ozzy, Tony, and Bill were absolutely positively broke. Their severance from Meehan inspired the name of Black Sabbath's next album in 75, Sabotage. Beyond that, the band struggled with what to do next. How were they going to tour? How would they make money or even continue to make records? British business manager Don Arden came to be known as one of the most notorious mob gangsters of the music business. He had actually talked to Black Sabbath back when they were starting out in 1970, but they rejected his offer, going with Meehan instead. But now that this had all transpired, Black Sabbath knew they needed help. 
They needed to get out of their contract with Meehan and get back to touring. In 1975, tails between their legs, they turned to Don Arden. He wasn't thrilled that they were coming back begging for help after turning him down five years earlier, but he took them on as a client. After all, by this point, they were one of the biggest selling rock bands in the world, and it was a chance for Arden to break through in America, a hurdle he hadn't yet overcome with his other bands, including Electric Light Orchestra and Lindsay DePaul. Arden worked swiftly to get the band back into the studio to record new music that they, and he, could claim royalties on while they were working out legal issues on the band's previous work. Sabbath released Technical Ecstasy in 1976 and Never Say Die in 1978. It was that album that caused Don Arden to come up with his now famous saying, you can't polish a turd. Never Say Die was the original turd. As Sabbath was struggling with their music, Don Arden's other band, ELO, was experiencing massive success. Around the same time, Tony Iommi started dating Don Arden's beautiful daughter, Sharon Arden. His relationship with her was really the only thing keeping Black Sabbath top of mind for Don. Iommi also had a wife and kid back in Britain, but I guess that was old news just like Ozzy's. Sharon was obviously pissed when she found out and broke things off with Iommi. But wanting a career of her own in the music industry, she stayed close and kept learning from her dad just as she had been for the past few years. Now with a struggling career, a manager that was all but ignoring them, and even more of a chip on their shoulder about the industry, Sabbath partied even harder. All of them abused alcohol and were addicted to coke and pills, all on a downward spiral toward the bottom. And their music kept suffering because of it. Plus, by the late 70s, punk had burst onto the scene, as well as a radical reinvention of metal with bands like ACDC, Van Halen, and Kiss invading the world of metal that Sabbath themselves had founded. They were quickly becoming obsolete. The only one who could see it happening was Tony Iommi. He started diving further into the production side of things, trying to find a way to keep Black Sabbath relevant. It used to be that they'd all go into studio together. Tony would come up with a riff, Geezer would invent a bass line, Ozzy made up the melody on the spot, and then Bill added in the icing on top with the drums. But now, the early days were gone. The rest of the band was so gorked out of their minds that they didn't even care to show up at the studio, except to just record their parts that Iomi had written for them. Black Sabbath as a creative force was over. The linchpin of that, at least in Tony's eyes, was frontman Ozzy Osbourne. As long as Black Sabbath had been making great music, Tony had seen Ozzy as a necessary evil, the crazy frontman with his antics. He was the face of the band and it worked. But now he resented having a buffoon for a lead singer. Ozzy was getting deeper and deeper into drugs and just couldn't keep his shit together at all, not even at rehearsals. The final straw came when they all came to the studio one day to find Ozzy passed out in a pool of his own piss. The band decided it was time for a change. 
Ozzy Osbourne was fired in 1979. Bill Ward, the one who had to deliver the news to Ozzy, would end up leaving Sabbath not a year later. He would say in an interview years later that he just couldn't accept a Black Sabbath without Oz. Not to mention, Bill had recently learned that one of his best friends, Zeppelin drummer John Bonham, had just died, choking on his own vomit because of alcohol and drug addiction, the same kinds of addiction Bill was struggling with. He knew he had to get help and get sober, so he left. So by 1980, it was just Geezer Butler and Tony Iommi left to keep Black Sabbath alive. I feel unhappy. I feel so sad. I've lost the best friend that I ever had. She was my woman. I love her so. But it's too late now. I've let her go. Initially, Don Arden was horrified that they let Ozzy go. But in his mind, maybe this could be a good thing. Maybe Ozzy could get a solo career off the ground. Then if Sabbath could get a new singer and drummer in place, Arden would have two artists to represent, two sources of income instead of just one. First order of business, though, was hiring a new singer and drummer. Iomi and Geezer landed on singer Ronnie James Dio, former vocalist of the band Rainbow. They then hired drummer Vinnie Apice. With a new lineup formed, Sabbath quickly released their next album, Heaven and Hell, in back quick to Sharon Arden, Don's daughter. Growing up, Sharon really looked up to her dad and wanted desperately to fill in his shoes in the music business. She had spent the last few years shadowing him and learning everything she could as he built his career as a manager. But in the late 70s, Sharon's respect for her father began to dwindle. She saw him become richer and richer with the success of ELO, and with that came a lifestyle she no longer agreed with. Don had been cheating on Sharon's mom. He left her in Britain to settle in Hollywood with a new young American girlfriend. Sharon was pissed. So when Ozzy got fired from Black Sabbath, Sharon saw an opportunity. She wasn't going to let her dad take on yet another artist that he could barely care about just for the money. She was ready to go off on her own anyway. And she and Ozzy had a lot in common. She told Mick Wall, quote, It was shit or bust for both of us. I knew that going in. Ozzy, bless him, was just glad someone cared, I think. Whereas I knew that if I could get him back on his feet and prove I knew what I was doing, people would have to take me seriously too. 
We both had a lot to gain and a lot to lose if we fucked up and got it wrong, end quote. Let's just say they didn't fuck it up. about to experience the greatest years of his entire career, creating arguably better music than he did in Black Sabbath. In just a few short years, Sharon Arden had gone from tour managing Ozzy to stealing him away from her father's management company and fully managing Ozzy on her own. Don Arden was extremely unhappy, and he and his daughter would battle, I mean knock down, drag out, fight with each other for years to follow. Her father began treating her with the same mob boss mentality he had used on other industry foes. She was no longer his daughter, she was his competitor. Regardless of the threatening phone calls, dog attacks, yes, Don sicked his dogs on his own daughter, and endless court cases, Sharon never left Ozzy's side. It was them against the world. Sharon had saved Ozzy, and he loved her for that. And she'd fallen in love with him too. In 1982, Ozzy married Sharon, who is now, as we know, Sharon Osbourne. Let's jump back to the struggle bus that was Black Sabbath in the early 80s. Black Sabbath released their next studio album, Mob Rules, in 1981, still with Ronnie James Dio at the helm. It was during his short time in Black Sabbath that Dio invented what is now a universal symbol of rock music, the devil horns hand gesture. It was something his Sicilian grandmother used to do to ward off evil spirits. Since Ozzy had the peace sign, Dio couldn't do that on stage, so he did the devil horns, thus creating the now cultural signifier of rock. But Ronnie was growing increasingly disillusioned with Black Sabbath. It also really stung to see Ozzy be so successful as a solo artist. 
1982, just two years after joining the band, he left and took drummer Vinnie Appice with him to start his own band, Dio. So yet again, Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler are left in Black Sabbath. Wanting to move quickly, they auditioned a bunch of singers, including, of all people, Michael Bolton. Finally, they landed on Deep Purple's Ian Gillen. Get higher and higher and Bill Ward, now clean and sober, returned for the making of Born Again, which was released in 1983 and widely panned by critics. There's an ugly devil baby with teeth and claws on the cover of Born Again, which Tony Iommi began referring to as Amy, the name of the baby that Ozzy and Sharon had just recently given birth to. Sharon found out and was so pissed off that she hatched a plan for revenge. Sharon got a Vogue model friend of hers to invite Tony out on a date in L.A., when Tony arrived at the restaurant, the girl wasn't there, but there was a small gift box waiting for him at the table. Assuming it was from his date, Tony opened the box and found two turds, one from Sharon and one from Ozzy. It was like this all the time. Disgusting. Bill left Black Sabbath not long after Born Again. Bev Bevan from ELO replaced him on drums. One of the most embarrassing Black Sabbath moments of all time came on the Born Again tour, involving the band's stage set. Don Arden saw a trend forming. It was no longer enough for a band to show up and play music. Your set had to be huge. Iron Maiden had a monstrous version of Eddie hanging over the stage. Dio had a giant animatronic dragon. Sabbath needed something gigantic and memorable. The first thing that came to Geezer's mind? Stonehenge. The English Monument, also the name of a track on the album, would be built as Sabbath's stage backdrop and would blow everyone away. The problem was that they asked for the Stonehenge models to be built to scale. Literally, they made a Stonehenge that was the actual size of Stonehenge. The set didn't even fit through the doors at half the gigantic arenas Sabbath was playing. This was famously parodied in the film Spinal Tap where a tiny 18-inch tall Stonehenge figure descends onto the stage and nearly gets knocked over by the dancing elves. A lot of that movie could describe Sabbath's career, to be honest. I for one think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. All right? That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. I really think you're just making a much too big a thing out of it. Making a big thing out of it would have been a good idea. Nigel gave me a drawing that said 18 inches, all right? I know he did, and that's what now, I'm talking about. Now, he knows the difference between feet and inches is not my problem. I do what I'm told. But you're not as confused as him, are you? I mean, it's not your job to be as confused as Nigel it's is. It's my job to do what I'm asked to do by the creative element of this band. <clears throat> and that's what I did. The Come audience on. were laughing. So it became a comedy number. I yes, it did. Yes, it fucking well did. And it was not pleasant to be part of the comedy on stage. Backstage, perhaps, it was very amusing. To Geezer Butler, this was all starting to not even feel like Black Sabbath anymore. 
Ozzy gone, Bill gone, all this drama between Sharon and Don with Black Sabbath right in the middle, embarrassing stage gaffes. He suggested they start fresh, retire the name, and get a new band going without all the baggage of a Black Sabbath moniker. It was a solid idea, but one that wasn't well-received by Iomi or the record company. Black Sabbath was to stay, so Geezer made the difficult decision to leave the band, followed by Ian Gillen, who left Sabbath to rejoin Deep Purple. Iomi, the last remaining original member, tried his best to keep hiring singers, including former male model David Donato and American singer Ron Keel, but nothing was working. Iomi put Black Sabbath on hiatus and started working on a solo album. This band had come back too many times from the dead for this to work any longer. Black Sabbath, in Iomi's mind, was over. Sharon forced Ozzy into rehab at the Betty Ford Clinic. Though now sober, he was kind of bored. Ozzy was presented with the opportunity to reunite with Black Sabbath at Live Aid 1985, but it was proving a difficult time for every one of the original members. Geezer hadn't played live with Tony for over a year after leaving post Born Again, it had been five years since Bill had been in the picture, and Ozzy hadn't been on a stage near anyone in Black Sabbath for seven years. The reunion at Live Aid went pretty well, all things considered. Geezer says they were all drunk for the performance, but, quote, we'd all got drunk separately. of a reunion began surfacing after the Live Aid show, the band never really saw it happening. Don Arden had Black Sabbath, and Sharon Osbourne had Ozzy. It wasn't the band members who would never get back together, it was their management who'd never agree to it. Arden also got in the way of Iomi's solo album. When he learned Tony was creating solo work with Sabbath keyboardist Jeff Nichols, Arden refused to let Iomi call it a solo album. He would have to use the Black Sabbath name. Iomi tried to get guys like David Coverdale, Robert Plant, Rob Halford of Judas Priest, and even their old singer, Ronnie James Dio, to be on the album, but was met consistently with mostly polite no's. Seventh Star, which should have been a Tony Iommi solo album, released in 1986, billed as an album by Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi. 
Everyone was confused by the name. Was this a Black Sabbath album, a Tony Iommi album, both or neither? The album reception was good, not great. The rest of the 80s and 90s saw a revolving door of continued drug use and new lineups, constantly keeping the Black Sabbath name alive even though it should have been retired years ago. Sabbath released The Eternal Idol and Headless Cross by the end of the 80s, and in the 90s released four additional studio albums, including 1992's relatively successful Dehumanizer, the first Sabbath studio album in more than a decade to feature, back in all their glory, Vinnie Appice and Ronnie James Dio. Meanwhile, back in Ozzy's camp, Sharon kept him chugging along. Ozzy released more solo work in the early and mid-90s, including the album No More Tears. twists of the Aussie Black Sabbath Arden family decades-long fight, Geezer Butler would go on to join Ozzy's solo band, and better yet, Sharon would finally win the battle against her dad, eventually winning permanently the Black Sabbath name. Basically, Don Arden had been sued for years of unpaid royalties and commissions by his golden child, ELO, and was arrested for kidnapping and torturing his former accountant. He relinquished his control of Black Sabbath to Iomi, who now, I believe, held legal rights to the name. That's all super, super complicated. But basically, Iomi, in a state of coke-induced panic, for some insane reason rehired Patrick Meehan to represent Black Sabbath. This is the guy who'd originally fucked them all over in the first place. As I understand it, Iomi found himself in another financial jam that landed him in jail for a brief time, and who was there to save him? Sharon. She got Iomi out of that, and in return, he relinquished rights to the Black Sabbath name to her. By the mid-90s, the most successful music festival was Lollapalooza, which was the brainchild of Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction. 
Sharon Osbourne tried to get Ozzy booked on the bill for Lala in 96, but they basically laughed in her face. They said no, that Ozzy was too uncool. So she turned around and made their own festival, one that would sell out immediately in its first year, gross far more than any of its competitors, including Lollapalooza, and go on to be one of metal's biggest brands, Ozfest. hand of Sharon Osbourne, Black Sabbath almost all reunited yet again for OzFest 1997, all except for Bill Ward, who was dissatisfied with the way his contract had been set up and decided to opt out. Though Sabbath did reunite in full multiple times over the course of the following years, including the double live album titled Reunion, a string of U.S. arena dates by the end of the 90s, and a reunion appearance by all four original members of Sabbath at OzFest 2001. The band even got into the studio together with Rick Rubin, a Sabbath fan himself, to record a number of songs. But soon after, the plug was pulled on any possibility of a new studio album. As Ozzy continued working on more solo albums, Sabbath went on to do the Heaven and Hell tour with opening bands Machine Head and Megadeth. This tour featured the Dio era lineup, drawing in the largest crowd Sabbath had seen in a long time. For legal reasons, they had to call themselves Heaven and Hell, as Sharon now owned the rights to the Sabbath name and sure as hell wasn't letting Iomi go and run with that without her piece of the pie. The battle was settled on undisclosed terms in 2010. That same year, Ronnie James Dio sadly passed away from stomach cancer. Between 2002 and 2005, Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne and their kids, Jack and Kelly, were immortalized in the reality TV show The Osbournes. Their oldest, Amy Osborne, refused to participate. The series followed the Osbournes and Sharon's now famous dog, Minnie, through both everyday domesticities and major events, including Sharon's battle with cancer and Ozzy's ATV accident. Ozzy's incoherent, slurred speech had many wondering if his drug and alcohol abuse had caught up with him, but that was only a small part of it. It was confirmed later that his Beverly Hills physician had been overprescribing him powerful antipsychotic and tranquilizing drugs. Ozzy was also recently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, a progressive nervous system disorder that affects movement. Even still, at age 71, Ozzy can still sing. And he's still on the radio. His new song with Post Malone and Travis Scott, called Take What You Want, peaked at number one by the end of 2019. The first time I heard it, I had no idea Ozzy was involved, and it nearly knocked me over. I can't decide how I feel about it. I don't hate it. From you, 
Though an Aussie appearance on a Post Malone record might seem weird and pandering at first, Ozzy credits Posty with getting him back into music and healthy again. Ozzy had suffered a debilitating bout of pneumonia earlier in the year and figured that was pretty much it for him. He'd be lying in bed for the rest of his life. But when Post asked Ozzy to sing on his song with him, he agreed, and it led to Ozzy meeting Post Malone producer Andrew Watt, who ended up producing a nine-track album for Ozzy. Ordinary Man released in February 2020 and received extremely positive reviews. Many critics consider it Ozzy's best album in years, akin to his early solo work and even his days in Black Sabbath so long ago. Post makes another appearance on the album, as do Guns N' Roses bassist Duff McKagan, Chili Peppers drummer Chad Smith, Slash, Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine, Travis Scott, Ozzy's daughter Kelly Osbourne, and Ozzy's decades-long friend Elton John. Sabbath held a farewell tour in 2017 with the original lineup minus Bill Ward. Ozzy has revealed he's open to the idea of reforming Black Sabbath again in 2022 to mark the Commonwealth Games, held in Sabbath's hometown of Birmingham. It sounds like Tony Iommi is on board, so we'll see what happens. Despite the battles and roadblocks in Sabbath's decades-long career, for eternity they'll live on alongside the Beatles, the Who, Led Zeppelin, and the Rolling Stones as one of the five greatest British bands of all time. Sabbath inspired countless, and I mean countless, bands of every rock genre and subgenre to follow, laying the groundwork for what's still one of the hardest, most complicated, and most loved genres to date, heavy metal. like what you heard, please share with a friend who you think would enjoy this podcast. If you have a topic or album you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, send me a DM over at Radio Gaga Podcast on Instagram or visit the contact page on my website, RadioGagaPodcast.com. Do you think I'm being foolish if I don't
In our next episode, we're highlighting R&B and soul singer Leon Bridges and his 2018 album, Good Thing. If you're not familiar with Bridges, his style is a modern take on old 60s R&B singers like Sam Cooke and Otis Redding. Give Good Thing a listen, and I'll see you back here next time. I know that grandma would have loved her like she was a